It's Monday, January 27th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Fool.com, Taylor Muckerman and Morgan Housel. Happy Monday, gents. Good to yeah, be here. Weekend's over. <laughs> <laughs> ah, just like that? Just like that. That's the mindset of a 20-something guy. Like, ah. <laughs> no, I'm happy to be back. We're ready to do this. Oh, all right. Good. Yeah. good. Not a bad thing. Yeah. I was going to say, don't, don't alienate our dozens no, of no, listeners no. right off the bat. Um, we're going to dip into the full mailbag. We're going to talk... J.P. Morgan, which is in the news, but let's start with earnings from Caterpillar. Uh, shares up more than 5% this morning. Fourth quarter profits up 44%. That seems like a, a way too large number to be indicative of massive growth. There's some cost-cutting going on here. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, they're doing exactly what their customers are doing, cutting costs. Uh, you look at capital expenditures across the mining sector, which is what this company really has geared itself towards over the last few years. Um, not only cutting in previous years, but they're expecting to continue to cut costs. You look at uh, Rio Tinto, one of the top three miners in the world, um, looking to cut $3 billion in CapEx over the next few years to 2015. And Vale, the large Brazilian iron ore miner, the largest iron ore miner in the world, has cut capital expenditures significantly the past three years. So um, that's why they weren't up even more. Mining really crushed this company. I, like, I think their resources segment was down uh, 48% in the fourth quarter on a sales basis. So even though the comps were really easy, that's why their you know their numbers were so great. Um, they they have a favorable outlook on the residential construction side, so maybe they'll shift a little bit away from the mining. Um, as I mentioned, the capex is down, so cutting costs still going on. They expect that to still persist in 2014. Um, but like you mentioned, 44 percent up. That's the largest increase for this company in I think three or four years. So uh, clicking right now. This is one of those companies that some people in the financial media love to attach. A lot of significance too when it comes to the global economy, when it comes to U.S. economy. Well, this is, you know, it's Caterpillar. They make big equipment, they build big things. You can't really have a boom in construction without Caterpillar doing well. Is that the wrong way to think of it, or is is it giving it too much significance? No, I think that's a perfect way to think about it. Uh, the largest producer of mining equipment in the world, uh, you look at Joy Global, is a big competitor, but they're more aligned with the coal industry. Um, so they've really gotten crushed over the last uh, year, year and a half. But yeah, Caterpillar, obviously big in the mining, big in the home construction and non-residential construction, especially with some heavy earth-moving equipment. So I think it's a perfect barometer, uh, especially given the fact that only about 40% of their fourth quarter income came from North America. They're very well diversified geographically. You're looking at about 21, 22% from Asia, 25% from Europe. So you really get a feel for the entire global economy when you look at this company. And um, they speak very highly of emerging markets moving to 2014. Um, They expect a little bit better growth um, than there was in 2013. So you've seen a lot of economists out there talking about a potential slowdown in emerging markets. But if you listen to Caterpillar, um, who has their ear to the ground because they're actually dealing with these customers on a daily basis, rather than just using data to try and pinpoint what they expect. Um, I think that they've got a, you know, a, a nice barometer. And, and investors in all different industries can really look at this company, much like a GE or an Alcoa, to really understand where the world is heading uh, on an economic basis. 
I hope they're right because 2013 for emerging markets, particularly when you look at the stock performance from emerging markets, right. was just abhorrent. And it's getting significantly worse just in the past week. I mean, just in the past 48, mm-hmm. 72 hours, it's starting to get pretty bad. You know, most of these financial crises, if you want to call it, and I don't think that's happening yet, but financial crises happen very quick, very suddenly without much warning. It's not the kind of thing that, you know, kind of just drifts downhill for a while. It's usually the kind of thing where you wake up overnight and you say, wow. Wow, what just happened? You wake up and you look at the results from Asia's market and you're like, oh, that wasn't good at all. And, you know, last week the the, the Argentine peso fell 15% against the dollar. And then uh, Friday and Saturday the, the, the Turkish lira started falling apart. And it's really, you know, there, there's no way you can really look at these and say, where is this going to go? What happens next? Because all of this, both, both the boom over the past couple of years – and now this unraveling we've had over the past two weeks is largely a function of confidence. And you really can't predict what investors' confidence is going to happen, what, what it's going to do going forward. But you know, for the last decade, we saw a tremendous amount of money pour into these developing countries. And now very quickly, we're starting to see it come out. And it's, it's not a pretty picture. On Friday, J.P. Morgan Chase's board of directors voted to raise CEO Jamie Dimon's pay his 2013 pay to 20 million, most of it in restricted stock, that is an increase of 74 percent over his 2012 compensation. Morgan, is it warranted? Well, uh, most Americans, I don't think, got a 74 percent raise. Not last 74. Year. No. Maybe 73 if yeah. they were lucky. But also, most Americans did not run a company that was sued and settled for literally tens of billions of dollars in 2013, as J.P. Morgan was. They were sued by almost everyone they've done business with in 2013. It just got to the point where it seemed like virtually every week there's a new lawsuit that J.P. Morgan just settled with for $5 billion here, $10 billion there, $12 billion there. And to have J.P. Morgan get a 74% raise to, to become one of the highest paid bankers on Wall Street now, I'd love to tell you, well, there's another side to the story. You have to understand X, Y, and Z. I really don't think you can. I really think it is as ridiculous as it looks. And there's a, there's, with banking, the pay for these CEOs is not so much based on the performance of the bank as much as it is the size of the bank. So J.P. Morgan has $2 trillion in assets. Even if you run that bank in a very mediocre manner, you'll make $20 billion in profits. And when your pay is tied to that large number based on size rather than performance, you're going to get these ridiculous headlines that we're seeing. So why do you think they did this? Why do you, Because to the extent that people who sit on boards of directors of Wall Street banks think at all about the financial media. They had to have known this was going to get attention. And do you think at least part of their thinking was, you know what, we're sticking by our man and we're going to say screw you to the rest of the world? Yeah. Because because that's – I wasn't in the room, but it wouldn't stun me at all to learn that someone in the room said something like that. You know, that wouldn't surprise me either. But I think for a lot of these boards, too, the board of directors are largely, uh, you know, work for the CEO rather than the other way around. And it's it's just become sort of a, a club of, of mutual back scratching than it is, uh, you know, board of directors actually keeping tabs on their CEO. And it's, you know, during the past uh, seven or eight years that Jamie Dimon has been CEO, He's been he's done a pretty mediocre job if you look at it just statistics that people measure banks at like return on assets, return on equity, uh, 
growth in dividend growth and profits. If you compare that to the rest of the banking sector, he's been almost exactly average. But he's held up and praised in the media as the best banker in America, smartest guy. Well, in the smartest guy. He's really done a very good job selling that persona. But if you look at it without any preconceived notions of what he's done, it's it's been pretty mediocre. The thing is that he's big. The bank is big. It's an enormous bank, so it's going to make headlines. And he gets a lot of FaceTime. I mean, he's in front of Congress, it seems like, on a weekly basis, especially in 2013. So maybe they're paying him per appearance. I'm not too sure. <laughs> well, on a more serious note, if you wanted to give him credit for something, he appears to be – I don't think there's anyone who looks at Jamie Dimon and says, well, that guy's not smart. He's clearly an intelligent guy. But he's also a guy who has shown an ability to take a lot of heat yeah. and to take it well. Now, granted, yeah. you could say he's responsible for the amount of heat in the kitchen that he is taking. But if you're on the board of directors and you want to give him points for something, I think you give him points for, well, he goes up to Capitol Hill and he can go toe-to-toe with anybody in Congress. Even then, though, when he went to Capitol Hill uh early in 2013 to talk about the London whale controversy. He was hauled before Congress to get his finger wagged at him about this. And it was the most ridiculous spectacle. All the congressmen that talked to him were basically bowing down to him and saying, saying, please, Mr. Diamond, what can we do to make you happier? What can we do to make your life easier? This was his punishment for the London whale. It It was pretty absurd. That's one more reason I love Elizabeth Warren. Right. The senior senior senator from Massachusetts because... She just doesn't. She, take she's not any afraid of that. to say it how it is. Exactly, she's a fool in the in the best sense of the word. She speaks truth to power, and she's completely unafraid of the Jamie Diamonds of the world. Absolutely. Um, you can always email us radio at fool dot com is our email address, and we will dip into the mailbag now. Um, question from Jim Bryling. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Who writes? I just read of pension plans and others moving substantial amounts of money from stocks to bonds. The reason? To lock in the recent soaring in equity prices. I'd like a full perspective, please. Morgan? I think it's always important to put these things in perspective. And rather than using words like soaring or investors plowing into an asset, you got to look at the numbers. So, you know, when you hear headlines about investors pulling $100 billion out of stocks, that sounds enormous. But you need to understand that investors own $20 trillion worth of stocks. So a $100 billion move is really not that much. And so we talk about this great rotation from bonds back into stocks. And it's true that a lot of investors are pulling money out of bonds and putting them into stocks. But if you look at the big picture, it's a very, very small segment of what's actually going on. So I think you know during, during the financial crisis, huge market meltdown, stocks fall 50%. Vanguard investors, only 3% of Vanguard investors actually cashed out during that period. In 2011, we had a big stock market pullback in the summer. Stocks fell almost 20%. Less than 2% of Vanguard investors made any change to their portfolio. So you could say Vanguard is not indicative of the average investor. It's mostly buy and hold investors. But there's, there's usually a big disconnect between what some people are doing and what the average investor is doing. So yes, I'm sure there are a lot of pension funds that are changing their allocation. But I think most investors, the vast majority of investors, pretty much buy some stocks and some bonds every month and just forget about it. And that's, that's how it goes. I don't know if this is the case with Jim, but I can imagine someone asking this identical question in part because they're working with someone 
they're working with a financial advisor who's saying to them, "Hey, look, look at these headlines. We, we got to move you. We got to move you out of stocks. We got to we got to reduce your exposure to uh, stocks. We got to get you, you know." 40% into bonds, that sort of thing. What do you say to someone in that situation? Well, I think even in pension funds, too, the time frame that these people focus on tends to be very, very short. There's a great story I like from Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock. He said he was having dinner with the CEO of one of the largest pension funds in the world. And the CEO said, our job is to think generationally. We're thinking about two, three generations ahead. And Larry Fink said, great, so how do you measure your returns? And the CEO said, monthly. <laughs> And I think that's, that's, that is indicative uh, 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 across professional investors, that they are incentivized to focus on very short periods. So, yes, stocks had a great 2013, and I'm sure there are some pension funds that want to lock those in, so to speak. That doesn't mean that individual investors out there that have 10 or 20 years in front of them to invest should be looking at that and taking cues because their incentives as professional investors are very different than your goals as an individual investor. Question from Joe Walsh, who quickly points out that he is no relation to the Eagles guitarist. He writes, recent headlines about the California water shortage and the chemical spill in West Virginia that created a temporary water shortage there. Uh, what is your opinion on investing in water stocks? And he mentions a few California Water Service Group, uh, Power Shares Water Resources, etc. If you've ever been without the use of water for periods of time, you understand just how important this liquid gold natural resource is. Great question. And uh, to my knowledge, I don't know that we've ever really talked about water stocks as a group. <laughs> yeah, they're not very, they're not as sexy as a JP Morgan or anything like that. Definitely not. Yeah. It's not the next Tesla. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, you don't see Elon Musk the, diving into it's this. It's not the next Chipotle. <laughs> uh, but it's a great point. Yeah. Uh, you're someone who looks at um, com- I don't want to say commodities, but right. just mining, natural resources, that sort of thing. Uh, what do you think of Joe's question? Well, you could kind of look at water as a commodity. Un- unfortunately for these utilities, they don't own the water source. Uh, you look at a lot of companies buying up and privatizing water sources around the world. Uh, Danon is a good example over in Europe, and I'm pretty sure Coca-Cola owns some, some water resources as well. But when you look at these utilities mentioned, um, they just have rights from the government to pull this water out of rivers, lakes, um, different bodies of water, and then filtering that and distributing it. Um, it seems like a pretty stable business to me. When you talk about the names he mentioned, I'm, I'm really not too familiar with all of them, but the business itself, when you look at water utilities, just like electrical utilities, I'm looking at scale um, because the infrastructure that these companies have to deal with is so expensive, especially with water. Um, you look at this being two times more expensive to distribute water than it is to distribute electricity and three times more expensive than to distribute natural gas. So um, you're looking at uh, American Water is a company that he didn't mention. It's the largest water utility in, in the country. And I think that's a good company to look at. Um, nice dividend. And the thing about the water utilities, much like electric utilities, is that their upfront costs and their operational expenses are largely covered um, by the rates they're allowed to charge. That being said, if they don't negotiate properly or um, t- they don't provide enough information on these rates, if the governments don't allow them to charge high enough, they could really be stuck with years of, of operating expenses that they're paying for out of pocket and, and lead to losses. So there's a little bit of risk here, but um, it's a stable business. And like I mentioned, you don't want to look at these companies as owning these water resources because they most definitely don't. So um, a water shortage isn't necessarily going to affect these companies as much as it would um, if they did own it. 
I would say, too, that whenever there is uh, a, a big burst of scarcity, like we dealt with oil last decade around 2007, 2008, you see a big burst of innovation around that. Sure. And I think you know there's a massive drought in California right now. It's really, really bad. And it's just starting to make national headlines. But California is as dry as it's been in 100 years. When I look at that, something that comes to mind that I think we'll very likely see in the next decade is a burst in innovation around desalination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I, I don't know any companies to invest around that. I think it's such a, it's such a, 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 a neat idea, but it's not, it's not really viable at this point. But neither was fracking ten years ago. Right. Fracking for oil, and then oil got scarce. The price went up. You had all these entrepreneurs said, "We're going to go figure this out." Yeah. So if, you know, making a long-term projection over 10 or 20 years, I would be pretty bullish on desalinization. The issue is it takes a tremendous amount of energy, but you get solar in there, you get cheap natural gas in there. You're going to see someone who is the Elon Musk of water is going to make some hay over the next two decades. Well, and you look at the investment in solar companies and solar technologies over the last 15 years or so, and it's easy for me to imagine the scenario you just described playing out in part because over the next decade, it's entirely possible that the federal government steps in with very favorable loans, grants, etc., to really kickstart some of these types of companies. Yeah, sure. Finally, from Craig Topple in Athens, Georgia, he writes, I started listening to Market Foolery just this past fall and listened to it just about every day. Thanks for the great program. Wow, you're, you're welcome. Thanks, thanks for, for listening. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm curious about what happens to stocks when a company is acquired by another or when it participates in a merger. What usually happens in each circumstance from an investment standpoint? Uh, Morgan, one of the examples he gives is something we talked about recently, and that is Beam the liquor company being acquired by Suntory Holdings. And so, hey, if I'm a shareholder of Beam, do I sell uh, or do I hold on and then become possibly a shareholder of Suntory Holdings? What well, do I do? Well, you, you could sell. There's nothing wrong with that. You don't need to sell. Usually when there's a merger or an acquisition, there are two things that can happen. One is that it's done for all cash, in which case if you own shares of the company that is being acquired, you'll just receive cash. You don't have to do anything for it. It'll happen automatically. You'll wake up one day, your stocks will be gone, you'll have more cash in your brokerage account, and that'll be the end of it. That's in a cash acquisition. If it's for stocks, you also don't need to do anything yourself. You'll wake, one, you'll wake up one day, and your shares of the old company you own will just be replaced with a new company. It's all automatic. You don't need to do a thing about it. So there, there's, there's no work that investors need to do on their part to, to make anything happen. It all, it, all, it all goes through automatically. I guess it just depends on your thought of what the company is going to look like afterwards. Then you can pull the trigger. Um, if you don't believe in the merger or acquisition and the future of it, or maybe if you got bought out at a higher valuation than you ever deemed imaginable, then you could take, take that money. I've only been through this once, and that was I owned shares of Marvel Entertainment, and then Disney bought it. I did go through probably a week or so worth of talking to people here at The Fool, reading some analyst reports about Disney, because I, on the face of it, I wasn't necessarily convinced I wanted to be a shareholder of the Walt Disney Company. And after doing a little bit of due diligence, I thought, okay, uh, all right, I'll, uh, stick I'll, I'll stick with this. And, it, and it's worked out. But have you... Have either of you been through that where you you own I, I will say, and David Gardner has made this point both about Pixar and about Marvel. 
he's a little bummed that, <laughs> that Disney bought them both. I was too, I, because I really loved having that pure play investment in Marvel Entertainment. Again, happy shareholder of the Walt Disney Company, but all things being equal, I would prefer that Marvel was still a standalone company. Yeah, you lose some of your specialization, and if you were invested in a high growth stock, which get acquired quite often, uh, with Disney, you're losing out on some of that growth potentially. Even though it is part of the portfolio, it's a much smaller size than being 100%. Uh, involved. I haven't ever invested in a company that's been bought out, so I can't speak to um, how I reacted. I I have one. I can't, I can't even remember with the all company. the day trading you do. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> about about five six years ago, I owned a company that got, got bought out. I can't for the life of me remember what it was. But as soon as I got new shares, I sold them. I didn't want anything to do with it, and that was the end of it. Keep the emails coming. Radio at fool.com is our email address. Taylor Muckerman, Morgan Hassel. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks, Chris. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Ann Henry. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.